0: So, Will. Yeah. The movie we're discussing today opens with an invocation of the muse and is a retelling, I guess, vague of, (sighs) in theory, of Homer's odyssey. If you had to adapt a historical epic into modern America, what would you do? So
1: one of the first things I thought of
0: is something that in retrospect
1: feels a little in the zone of the prestige without quite being that. Just in that I think there is space to do something fun with Prometheus, where Thomas
0: Edison is a jerk to somebody. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of room to do Thomas Edison as a jerk to somebody. Right, you don't have to work too hard to get there.
1: But there is, you know, something. In that case, it's probably not stealing fire or an invention or something from Edison. It's somebody who creates a better version of Edison's thing and is sued to the ground, which I guess is barely Prometheus at that point, but is historically accurate.
0: Yeah. As part of the settlement, he's chained to a rock and eagles eat him in 1800s America. That's how it goes.
1: I thought about this a lot. It was kind of hard for me to come up with something that felt fun in a way, because I think a lot of the best myths are about status they're about class you think about a story like um the minotaur in the labyrinth i mean that is a story among other things about power and it's hard to imagine those stories in the united states without on some level making them explicitly about
0: race right that makes sense
1: and i think that's partially where this movie kind of trips up some for me i enjoyed it a lot but i couldn't help feeling like this is a movie that should be about black people.
0: Yes, this movie definitely is a Cohen Brothers movie in its treatment of race, in that yeah. it feels like it's trying to pat itself on the back, but isn't doing a good enough job to warrant that.
1: And I'm sure we'll talk about that more, but just, like, the fact of doing a movie about a chain gang in the South in the Depression already suggests that most likely we would be dealing with black leads, but also the ways that it then kind of uses african-americans as background color in a way i mean we also get a literal magical Negro I know. early well, on that was
0: <laughs> it's like of course they chose an old blind black man to play teresius so that's the kind of thing when i'm thinking about these other myths
1: i'm thinking about okay well if you do a minotaur story i mean if somebody is writing an American Minotaur story in the 19th century, that's probably real dicey. If you do it today, it probably has some sort of framing based around
0: slavery. I think it would have to, in terms of the forced sacrifice of children from Athens to Crete, Crete, yeah, Yeah. Crete, Crete. the forced sacrifice of children, that class and power dynamic only works. I would agree that it works best in a sort of slavery setting. And is a, telling of, you know, resistance and freedom to the evil system that is American slavery. Right, which is not at all the sort of whimsy that we're getting out of this movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No. Weirdly, The Odyssey is a fairly whimsical, depressing story, so it kind of makes sense. But at the end of the day, it's also incredibly depressing. Well, sure. But I was thinking what could be kind of fun, different, you know, background, but imagine Beowulf. Set on 80s wall street but gender swapped so it's about a high-powered woman executive showing up at different companies and having to defeat the evil entrenched sexism within the company with a Do you sword you just want to watch working girl yeah always but imagine it she has a sword <laughs> just like direct lines from beowulf but with a completely different background
1: Mark, did you somehow see Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four even though its release was delayed?
0: You know why you're not <laughs> you're not wrong. And I wouldn't be upset if that is what happens. Isn't it set in a mall? I mean it's a movie set in 1984. Of course it's set in a mall. Where else could it be set?
1: By the time this episode is coming out, allegedly movie theaters will be reopening.
0: And I don't know about that. I don't know agree with how it is being handled, to say the least. Like, Christopher Nolan
1: is out in all the press being like, you really need to see Tenet in theaters. And I'm like, buddy, I
0: agree with you. I just don't want to do it now. I just don't want to do it in a situation where I could get a very deadly disease. Right. Oh my god. That is driving me insane. Also- The president of AMC, his statement where he was like, we're not requiring masks because we don't want to get drawn into a political controversy. I would say that encapsulates a lot of problems with our country today. Oh, absolutely. That one statement, just the actual fact that the best way to reduce transmission is for everyone to wear a mask, but somehow that is political. Yeah.
1: It's uh, it's quite dumb. Anyway, folks, uh, be safe, stay inside. Don't go outside
0: for dumb stuff. Yes. And listen to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And do it a self plug. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. Uh, this, of course, is a
1: podcast dedicated to examining one of the most important, unimportant questions facing us today, namely, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if you forgot that there's a Penelope thing in the Odyssey, so about three-quarters of the way through you start to wonder, wait, is this whole episode just gonna be about the sirens? I don't know. We'll dig
0: in and see what's there. So this movie... I've seen before, but it's been a long time, and I could have sworn there was more Holly Hunter in this, but maybe that's because I wanted there to be more Holly Hunter in this and convinced myself, in retrospect, that she was a bigger part.
1: I mean, it's okay. We need to get a balance with these movies. We need to do some movies with not a lot of romance
0: and some movies with lots of romance to see
1: how it all fits together.
0: Exactly. This movie, definitely on the not a lot of romance side of things.
1: And it is worth noting, uh, we haven't actually said it, the movie we are discussing this week is the Coen Brothers 2000 alleged adaptation of the Odyssey, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?
0: Yes, this movie's probably most lasting legacy is its soundtrack, which is very interesting. It is a movie soundtrack that won the Grammy for Best Album, not just Best Soundtrack.
1: Although it did also win Best Soundtrack. Well,
0: yes. And I have listened to this... (laughs) so many times. Oh, it's fantastic. I was watching this with Nick and he was just like, how do you know all of the words to every song? And I was just like, "Mm, you don't know how long I've just been listening to this album.
1: I was so delighted by all the music. This is exactly the kind of stuff that I like. Uh, My go-to Spotify playlist is the essential folk one. So this is a good thing to have in my awareness. They actually also did something I want to track down, a concert film called Down from the Mountain where all the musicians on the soundtrack then did a concert together in Nashville. Ooh, that sounds really fun. Yeah. And a nice connection to another movie that we've covered, the name The Soggy Bottom Boys is a reference to the Foggy Mountain Boys, which is a Depression-era band led by Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs, whose music was the soundtrack to Bonnie and Clyde.
0: Oh. Hmm. Also, that <coughs> sounds like it may have inspired a future Cohen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, maybe in names, Yeah, but not in... I don't know anything Eddie about Nelson. the movie. Except that it also has Tim Blake Nelson, who I adore. He's great.
1: Um, Loved him ever since I saw him in Holes.
0: He is also incredible in Watchmen. A TV show He's- I would... Highly recommend watching. Yeah,
1: it's a good thing to be visiting this summer, maybe. Yes. Um, In addition to all that, the soundtrack, as you said, won several Grammys. It won the CMA Award for Single of the Year for Man of Constant Sorrow. And it went, according to uh, one source I saw,
0: octuple Platinum. That's insane. I didn't know that was a thing that could happen. Well, like, if you hit the thing for platinum again, you just go double platinum or triple platinum. I know, I just hadn't heard of anything going octuple before. It sold crazy well, and that's largely without radio play. Yeah, because most of this would not get played on any radio station that you would get unless you're outside of the city in the south.
1: At the kind of radio station where you could just, like, drive up and sing into the
0: can? Exactly. Imagine if you ran a radio station that way. That is how I would run a radio station. The amount of terrible music you would end up playing. But it would be fun. It would be fun.
1: And the thing is, the way you do it is you don't say constantly, we just play whatever. You have like a block in the day, like a three hour block where it's like, come in and we'll just do you singing a song. And then the rest of the day, you can program it, and you can use the stuff. Like, you have people sign away the rights to their thing. You put
0: in some really draconian contract. (laughs) Yeah, that would definitely be a very exploitative system. It'd be fun, though. Yes. And then you have Papio Daniels, who is somehow the governor and also running a radio radio show out of the middle of nowhere
1: based on a real governor of texas from the early 20th century
0: oh who did run a radio
1: show where he had like a backing band he was a flower magnate and he also framed himself as a reform candidate and carried a broom around a bunch
0: So he's kind of an agglomeration of the two candidates. Now, had you seen this movie before? I had not.
1: I have a lot of gaps in my Coen brothers watching, but True Grit is one of my all-time favorites. And, uh, you know, I always think they're fun. This one felt to me like it was good, but not great.
0: Yeah, I think the reason that I like this movie so much is the music. I think if the soundtrack was any worse, I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much as I do. But I do find George Clooney to be very fun in this. And, of course, there is Holly Hunter.
1: Of course, yeah. So Clooney is just a year out from E.R., when this movie comes out, he's three years away from Batman. Ocean's 11 is the next
0: year. So this is like peak Clooney. He is as famous as he will ever be. And he has a terrible mustache. I think it's great. <laughs> it works so well, but it's so bad. I'm a big fan of, uh, big fan of Clooney. <laughs> Clooney's look in this because it's weird where he's clearly
1: dirty, but like he can't make himself not be pretty. And the movie decides to lean into it.
0: Right. They just make him a character who is attempting to look pretty no matter the circumstances which works yeah it's a great choice for Clooney because you're never going to fully buy him as a schlub
1: so my favorite Clooney story related to this movie is that he was having a hard time getting a handle on the script he plays Ulysses Everett McGill who is a fast talking jabbermouth so he sent the script to an uncle of his in Kentucky and was like hey could you read all of my lines into a tape recorder so i could like get a sound of how it flows and his uncle said well, this isn't how people talk, but recorded it and sent it back to him. And Clooney decided he liked using that as a baseline. So he stopped using the script and just used the tapes to learn his lines. And like a month or two into shooting, the Coens came up to him and were like, you know, George, you're doing this word perfect, which is pretty impressive, except you're never saying the hells and dams in the script. And what happened was when his uncle said, this isn't how people talk, his strict Baptist uncle had meant they don't invoke hell and damning people. And so he took them all out of the script. That's
0: incredible.
1: Isn't that a great story? That was from a 15th anniversary screening they did in New York a couple years ago.
0: Oh my God. That's so classic. I can easily see that happening. Fantastic. He does nail the dialogue so well. It's so fun. And in the scene when he's talking to John Goodman and you just can't really keep up, it's so impressive that they managed to have that rhythm. Yeah,
1: Clooney's in particular reminded me of a performance that I really liked that I saw a couple weeks ago. Um, I've been trying to catch up on 2020 movies.
0: So, Trolls World Tour, Doolittle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I saw Doolittle in theaters, thank you very much. Yeah, We talked about that. I, I am aware. <laughs> um, Doolittle actually no longer the worst movie That I saw in 2020. Because I have watched Artemis Fowl. Why? I had to
0: know. Oh my god, Will. I had to know. It is the worst thing I've seen this year. It sounded awful based off of the reviews. It is both a bad movie and a horrendous adaptation. Imagine just failing that hard on your first original movie. Like, isn't that the first just Disney Plus movie? No, absolutely. Oh, okay.
1: No, they put out some at launch. And it also wasn't made as a Disney Plus original movie. It was supposed to be a theatrical last summer. But then when they had to shuffle their schedule because of the Fox buyout, it got pushed to this spring. And then when COVID happened, they said, never mind, it's going on Disney Plus.
0: They kind of lucked out (laughs) on that movie.
1: Well, you compare it to like Mulan, they just keep pushing back. Right. Like, they... <laughs> they know the difference
0: between what they have. Yeah, right? they, they were aware, I'm sure. And what's
1: interesting is I think this makes Thor Kenneth Branagh's best movie of the 2010s.
0: He's not a very good director in recent years. Because the others, he did a Jack Reacher movie,
1: he did Cinderella, the 2015 one, and he did Murder on the Orient Express. And I think Thor is better than all of those. Thor is really entertaining. It's fun! I'm a I'm a Thor defender.
0: I mean, it's not like a incredible movie, but it is very fun. Yeah. And none of those other movies are incredible either. Right,
1: yeah. Anyway, the movie that I was thinking of was a movie called The Vast of Night, which I think you would really dig. It is basically a feature-length Twilight Zone episode, and it's set in New Mexico in the late 1950s, like just shortly after Sputnik. And it's about two teenagers, one of whom is working the radio station at night, and the other is working the phone switchboard. And they start getting these transmissions that they can't make sense of and are trying to investigate it over the course of the night.
0: That sounds very cool.
1: It's very cool. It's streaming on Prime. Uh, Again, it's called The Vast of Night, and I highly recommend it.
0: Uh, Just gonna write that down really quick so I remember to watch it later. So... (laughs) <laughs> what why did that one come up I lost the thread <laughs> um I I, the vocal delivery right. in it there's uh the guy who plays the
1: radio operator he has the kind of pattern that's very similar to Clooney in this movie so that's what I was thinking about
0: while I was watching it I'm not sure because I never had the chance to look up the words but I swear Clooney used words wrong too and obviously if it happened it would be a deliberate choice but I feel like some of the words he said did not mean what he thinks they mean. They just have to be close enough. And if you go fast enough, nobody catches exactly. it. Exactly. Speaking of stuff
1: that just has to be close enough, we've been making jokes about how this is like only sort of an Odyssey adaptation. It is worth noting that neither Joel nor Ethan Cohen has ever read the Odyssey. That sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, Ethan Cohen once described it as one of his favorite storylines, but admitted that he only knew it through adaptation. Apparently, Tim Blake Nelson was the only person on set who had actually read Homer because he had a degree in classics from Brown. That makes sense to me.
0: Have you ever read The Odyssey? No. There's a translation that came out a few years ago. It's the first time a woman has translated The Odyssey, and she attempts to recover how it would have actually sounded instead of trying to recreate the language of, like, the highfalutin language of the 1700s and 1800s that a lot of authors are going for. She uses much more direct language and doesn't shy away from euphemisms like she refers to everyone as slaves and not just servant girls and things like that and attempts to really flesh out the story in a way that isn't just you know pure poetry that inspires the future it is poetry but she's also looking at you know the actual story and why that's important it was really cool to actually sit and read it that is very interesting i don't remember the author's name but if you were ever interested in actually reading The Odyssey, I would recommend that translation. Emily Wilson. All right. Good to know. We're just throwing recommendations around here. <laughs> well, there's not a lot of romance to talk about in this movie.
1: So we got to <laughs> fill have the time, time somehow. And inter- another interesting thing about this, we talked about the soundtrack for this movie being so notable. The other significant thing about this movie is is that it's the first movie to be entirely digitally color-corrected. Because the Coens were looking for this brownish look to it, the dirt, think about Bonnie and Clyde depression. But they shot in a time of year where, as one of the Coens put it, everything was greener than Ireland. So they, along with Roger Deakins, who shot the movie, spent 11 weeks digitally color-correcting the entire movie to take those greens and turn them browner.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. In 2000. Uh, Like a wild process. Yeah, a thing that is much more common now, but at the time had never been done for an entire movie. Yeah. How many movies do you think are completely color corrected today? It's probably easier. Like a computer can probably do it more automatically.
1: Yeah, it is definitely easier today. And it is not uncommon for a decent amount of that to go on. Okay.
0: The movie looks really good. It does. It, it's very pretty. I mean, it's Roger Deakins doing what he does. Yeah, but they the color correction, I think, really works. I think they captured the effect that they were going for in this movie. Yeah,
1: and it doesn't stand out too, too much. No,
0: you don't really notice it, but it does give the movie kind of an air of surrealness, which I think is good. Like, because the movie is clearly not super realistic. Like, there's a lot of Cohen slightly out-of-the-norm world-building happening in this movie. And I think you don't notice it, but just the slight difference in the color from reality kind of fits in and helps to build that mood. The
1: other movie that I thought about a lot watching this was Tim Burton's Big Fish, which is similarly a sort of southern tall tale journey. Where you're kind of wandering through and not sure quite how real anything is.
0: Right. Because you have no idea what the distances or geography of this movie is or where they're actually going. Everything is extremely vague, which I appreciate.
1: And that somewhat reflects... The interactions with the characters, too, where Ulysses has clearly sold some outrageous story where he's talking about the water level rising as being a factor for getting this treasure back. And it clearly doesn't make sense if you were to prod at that story, but if you let it sit there, it's kind of interesting.
0: Right. It's clearly a lie. Right. $1.2 million in the Great Depression. Somehow just in danger of flooding. Sitting there is insane. Although I suppose a flood does play a major role. Yeah, I believe that the flood is happening. This is prime TVA time. Southern uh, electrification happening full force.
1: Oh yeah. Now this movie was pretty well received. Not rapturously, but pretty, pretty well. It seems like a lot of critics felt the way that I do, which is good, not great. It screened at Cannes in the spring of 2000 and then opened on December 22nd, 2000 on five screens and slowly built up. Ultimately grossed $45 $45 million domestic against a $26 million budget. It got Oscar nominations for cinematography, for deacons, and for adapted screenplay. Adapted screenplay, it lost to Traffic, and cinematography, lost to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Good. <laughs> yeah, hard to argue. <laughs> yeah. What I think is more interesting is that the Golden Globes, where George Clooney wins for lead actor in a musical or comedy, and it's nominated for Best Picture Musical or Comedy in an incredible lineup. So O Brother loses to Almost Famous, which is a fantastic movie, mm-hmm. and the other nominees are a Lot, Chicken Run, and Best in Show.
0: What a year. Oh, Chicken Run.
1: I love that movie so much. You know who the US distributor of Chicken Run was? Who? DreamWorks.
0: It counts. We're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the schedule. I'll do it with you. The only problem but... is the Mel Gibson of it all. Well, you know. At least you don't have to see his face.
1: Yeah, we will denounce him vigorously. Yeah.
0: That movie's so good. I have not seen it in probably over a decade. This is Tweety is one of the best villains in animated movies. She's terrifying. Yeah, I'll be happy to revisit it.
1: I think we need to do a proper DreamWorks first. Yes. It's been
0: too long. Yes, I think you are correct, but we will do that someday. Yeah. All right, so should we start breaking down the romance as it exists? Let's do it. All right, so every week we break down the romance into five plot points to help us. A- Guide the conversation, because we're very streamlined, no tangents here. I always maintain the thread of conversation and never get lost. So let's start with point number one, which is very self-contained. We're about an hour into the movie now? Yeah, so we're about an hour in. We've gotten the lotus eaters in the form of the Baptists who go into the river to pray and get baptized. We've got Tiresias, the magical Negro, which is really unfortunate. It's like really on the nose. (laughs) Everything is really on the nose because the other major black character is a performer. Yes.
1: (laughs) And then the others that you see are, are literally background in terms of they are on chain gangs, they are grave diggers. It is sort of the ultimate example of a story that should probably be about black characters instead having black characters just in the background yeah including in the clan sequence where they uh raid a ku klux klan ritual to rescue their friend tommy the production hired a formation unit a military dress unit that does like marching and stuff like that to do the marching for that and like the military the unit was predominantly black
0: I was watching this and I don't begrudge the actors at all. Like they're not doing anything bad, but I was watching it and I was just thinking I could never, even as an extra with no one seeing my face, I could never put on that robe. Yeah. I would just feel so disgusting. It would be so tough. Well, that
1: was, that unit
0: was primarily. Yeah. And I can't imagine the feeling that they must have had. It was apparently quite strange on set. Yes. Even though clearly the movie is attempting to, similarly to the Superman serials of the 40s, point out the inherent ridiculousness of the KKK as well as the danger of it. I think that they handle the KKK better than I was expecting based off of the <laughs> treatment. Certainly of based on the way people, that this
1: movie sort of flippantly throws around nooses. Yeah.
0: But it was definitely. Um, I do like the choice that having the progressive reform candidate as the head of the KKK.
1: I think that's a very good point about the way that those things could often overlap in the early 20th century South. Right. I mean, it's worth keeping in mind that in that period, the Klan was a cross-party organization.
0: Right. It was very believable for the reform candidate to also be proud of his membership in this organization, too.
1: And in the 1920s, even more so than in the 1930s, when this movie was set, in some parts of the country, like Mississippi, it would be almost impossible to achieve political success without an alliance with the Klan, which is itself a pretty
0: damning thing. Right. It's very painful to watch that happening and you know that papio daniels is not a friend of black people it's not like he actually you know will improve the lives but at least he is i guess not a member i mean he wasn't at the thing yeah the rally so i guess and he's willing to use black people as campaign props
1: that is such a low I bar know. you just described it's
0: it's so uncomfortable to watch the like good good guy win. I guess the point is that, no, there's no good guys in the Depression-era South, because everyone's terrible, except for Tommy. Tommy did sell his soul to the devil. That's true. Now, like, here's the thing. In
1: the Jim Crow South, you can understand how, like, he's got this thing. As he says, he doesn't really feel like he's using it. This is a chance to build a better life for himself. You can make the case for it. Right. And it's based off a true
0: story. Well, true legend. I feel like saying true story kind of (laughs) doesn't really apply here. Did the devil confirm this to you? (laughs) Yeah, actually. Got him on speed dial. That's concerning. (laughs) Yes, that was definitely a um, misspoken description of what happened. But this movie is very, it was definitely uncomfortable watching it in the summer of 2020. It just feels like, it, it feels careless, frankly. Right. You are right that this movie should have tackled it better and also investigated racism instead of using it as a plot point to kind of show that our characters are sympathetic. Like, that's basically the only way it is used. Yeah. And then as set dressing, as you said. So you want to talk about romance? Sure. Uh, so point one, the sirens. Go to sleep, baby. My name is Ulysses Everett McGill, and Go to
1: sleep, well, you three ladies baby. are about to... The
0: prettiest. The prettiest. So the three of them are just walking around the south, and they come across a river. At this point, they're actually in the car, and John Turturro, as uh, Pete, insists that they pull over. Right. Who I did not realize, but when I looked him up, he is the love interest in the great film Gloria Bell, starring Julianne Moore. Oh, I've been seeing lots of John
1: Turturro recently, because I just watched Do the Right Thing, where he plays Pino, Danny Aiello's son. And I, a couple months ago, wrapped up the very excellent HBO series, The Plot Against America,
0: where he plays Rabbi Bengelsdorf. He's great. Yeah. So he hears the sirens and forces them to stop the car. And these three women are singing the creepiest love, lullaby maybe in history
1: about having a threesome with them and the devil
0: no i mean if you look it up it's actually about a man whose wife has run off and one interpretation is he's singing his baby to death because he can't care for it yikes (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean that's a thing where southern lullabies are really creepy right and the way they their harmony their performance of it really um (laughs) highlights the creepiness of it too
1: as they're just like washing these clothes and mark like you're correct absolutely but i also gotta say the sequence is hot
0: yeah i mean it's just three attractive women in very see-through white garments squeezing water over themselves in a river yeah but they do a good job of kind of making them sirens right it's it is
1: creepy in a way that's kind of off-putting but it is still decidedly seductive like you
0: are intrigued and drawn towards this and so they seduce the men and give them alcohol until they pass out and clearly moonshine yeah it's clearly i think he says corn liquor at one point everett and just pouring it into their mouths everett's talking the whole time obviously
1: he sounds like an exhausting person to make out with
0: uh
1: yes uh i I broadly like everett but I feel like he would not shut up
0: while making out with somebody. No, not at all. Ever. Even during sex, he would probably be talking, narrating the whole thing. Well, he's been blessed with the gift of gab. So they pass out from the liquor, and then when they wake up... Pete's been turned into a toad! Pete's been turned into a toad. <laughs> one of the most ridiculous and one of my favorite parts of this movie is just watching Delmar try and capture and care for this toad that he thinks is Pete. And even Everett kind of starts to just buy into the fact that these women have turned Pete into a toad by having sex with them.
1: Because it's so strange that like, when Everett and Delmar wake up, Pete, John Turturro is gone, but his clothes are laid out like spread eagle. It's like he was raptured. Right. clearly what happened was he stripped down to his underwear to go and like, wash himself or something and laid his clothes out to dry. Right. And then was captured
0: while he was in his underwear.
1: But to them, it looks like his clothes are just laying out there. Like, his body disappeared, and there's a frog inside his shirt. Right.
0: And so these sirens, these witches, have turned him into a horny toad, in the words of Delmar, as punishment for his fornicating ways. I think the sirens turned all of them into horny toads. And that's about that for the romance of the sirens. I think it's implied they turned in Pete for the bounty. Yes, they did. Because they are escaped convicts from a chain game. Right. And so, I guess... Point number two. Hey the rest of the points are all part of the actual same romance. Oh great. So point number two, they arrive in the town that they are walking towards, close to where the treasure is buried. and the reform candidate, Homer Stokes is giving a his stump speech waving a broom a friend of the little man so he has an actual
1: little person with him on his
0: campaign which feels like a depression era campaign move Uh, definitely and then after he speaks the mcgill mcgill
1: uh well he would call them the mcgill girls but they are identified as the warby girls right
0: so the warby girls three of them perform a song and everett recognizes them as his daughters Even though they don't really recognize themselves as his daughters anymore.
1: Three of his seven daughters.
0: (laughs) Oh my god. It's so many children. And they're like all under ten? Yeah. And so they're very matter of fact telling him that he's dead and was hit by a train. Right. Because that is what his wife, who was angry with him for breaking the law and getting arrested, has told her children. She's like, well, you don't have a father anymore. Your father was hit by a train. Right. So he goes to find and confront his wife about this, his ex-wife. They are officially divorced. Right. And it is Holly Hunter and the rest of their four daughters just in a... Five and Dime store. It's a Woolworths. Nothing over
1: 10 cents. Because there's the question when they get thrown out of, are they just banned from that
0: Woolworths or all of them? And my question is, in 1932, how would they enforce that ban nationwide? They wouldn't. Exactly. But yes. Yeah, so he confronts Penny... And finds out that she is engaged to be married to a new person. Which he knew because that's why he broke out of jail. Right. This is the real reason he lied to Pete and Delmar about the treasure. Because he is attempting to stop the wedding and win Penny back.
1: Right. He needed to get to the church on
0: time. So he starts yelling at her because he's a huge misogynist. Constantly talks about how much he hates women. But clearly still loves Penny and his daughters and is trying to win them back. So... Penny's fiancé does not care for how he treats his fiancé, like Penny. And they get into the weirdest fist fight in the Woolworths. It's borderline a slap fight. Yeah, it's very funny to watch. But yeah, so I guess then they leave. They're kicked out of the Woolworths and they're on the run from the cops again. We get the KKK sequence, but then this brings us to point three, which is another campaign event for Homer Stokes.
1: Woo! He's in the jailhouse now He's in the jailhouse now Well, I told him once or twice To stop playing cards and shooting
0: dice He's in the jailhouse now Where the person he is running against is actively trying to steal away the campaign manager at a campaign event.
1: Is basically trying to take over the event, which he ultimately successfully does. (laughs) Right.
0: And so it turns out that the fiance of Penny is the. Campaign manager for Stokes, and thus she is in the front row of the venue. And somehow they put on the fakest-looking beards and end up performing. It is not clear where these beards. Come it's from. not clear where these beards come
1: from. It's not clear what the plan is. I mean, so. They've made it back from the Klan rally, and I guess the plan is to just get in front of Penny and continue working on her. It's not a real plan. It only succeeds because, unbeknownst to them, they
0: have become famous. Right, so (laughs) the four of them have become the hottest musical act in Mississippi. Which we knew about because we had seen, like, newspapers that they burned
1: talking about, like, who are the Soggy Bottom Boys from when they drove up to... Stephen root's radio station and sang man of constant sorrow into the can to get some money
0: right and we also see that their record is sold out and is flying off the shelves
1: yeah so they come in in their beards they start singing some songs and they do man of constant sorrow and everyone recognizes oh my gosh it's the foggy bottom
0: boys soggy bottom boys That's the right. foggy bottom boys are the state department i guess yeah I love that Tim Blake Nelson is one of the only people in this movie that is not dubbed over.
1: He's dubbed for most of his singing, but he's not for the one song. Okay,
0: yeah. So he performs in the jailhouse now, and then they sing Man of Constant and Sorrow, and everyone flips out. It is Beatles at Shea Stadium levels of women screaming for this song. And Homer Stokes tries to get rid of them based on the fact that they disrupted his clan rally. And he thinks that they are mixed race people because they had covered themselves in soot so they could escape. They were breaking Pete out of jail, so they covered themselves in soot to escape and... At the clan rally, Homer Stokes thinks that they are <laughs> biracial. So he's basically like, we need to kill them all now. And the crowd is upset.
1: Yes. So he is literally
0: ridden out on a rail. Yeah, he is tied to a pole and then run out from his own campaign event so that the Soggy Bottom Boys can perform.
1: And then also, Penny becomes more open to <laughs>
0: getting back with Ulysses. Right. And so they're pardoned by Menelaus in exchange for supporting his campaign a very savvy political maneuver. And well, specifically, he says in exchange for their implicit endorsement. Right. And so somehow this wins Penny back?
1: Yeah. I don't really get it. It doesn't really make sense. Nope. Um, I think the movie thinks that her fiance is tarred by association and she dumps him. It's unclear why. Is it because of the clan thing? Feels like she would have been aware of that. It doesn't make sense.
0: But this brings us yeah. to point four. You... Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. They're walking out of the event and...
1: Unless she's just, like, chasing because now he's famous and well-liked. Yeah. She's like, never mind, I'm gonna be with a soggy bottom (laughs) boy. Yeah, I'm gonna be
0: with a famous, now politician, kind of. Because Menelaus, Papio Daniels is like, they are now my brain trust. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so she's trying to get to fame and fortune. Wants to get her a soggy bottom boy. So they... Immediately get into an argument over Penny's engagement ring, because she wants to get rid of the one given to her by her ex-fiance and have her old wedding band back, even though it's made out of pewter, and demands that Everett go fetch it from their cabin.
1: Right, because she's thought about it and counted to three, and that's that.
0: And so they go. The sheriff, who wants to kill them because they escaped on his watch and doesn't care that they were pardoned, tries to kill them.
1: And this, again, is where, like, this character feels like someone hunting down black people. Right. It does. Like, the intensity of it feels like that. The point when he has captured John Turturro and whips him, threatens him with lynching, refers to him as being unreconstructed. All of that feels like language, very uh, violent and historically inflected acts and languages that would be directed towards a black character. Right.
0: It really doesn't make sense that this movie is starring white people. It really does not. And they are rescued by prayer and the flooding of the river. So the entire valley is very quickly flooded. I don't think it happens that fast.
1: No, they would not do it that fast, but it's part of a TVA project. Right.
0: So it's flooded and they make it back to town. For point number five. <laughs> yeah. They find the ring that Penny said was in the roll top desk. But this brings us to point five. <gasps> They are walking with their seven daughters on a leash. Well, they're not all leashed. They are all holding the string at least and one, <laughs> one of, them is, of them is a leash kid and it turns out that this is the wrong ring and basically penny counts the 3 and demands that he go to the bottom of the lake to fetch her ring or they won't get married and that's how the movie ends and that is the end of the movie so well after watching all of this happen do you find the romance
1: believable no the thing i believe most is the sirens actually yeah
0: it makes absolutely no sense
1: because the premise of the sirens is um attractive women use alcohol, and seduce men.
0: In order to get the bounty.
1: Yeah, I believe that. Yes. I would watch a movie about them. Right. Um. (laughs) But
0: Penny is not a
1: character and makes no sense. The only way Penny makes sense is if she decides to be with
0: Ulysses based on his apparent future fame and fortune. Yes. Which doesn't really seem to be the case. No, because she threatens to leave him so quickly because he's obviously not getting that ring back. Right. So I don't think it makes any sense. No. So where would you rate this on a 10 point scale with one being like the a one. least believable? I'll give it a two because of the siren scene. Oh, my one was for the sirens. Oh, no. okay. <laughs> otherwise it's a zero. <laughs> I think if you don't have the sirens, it's a zero. <laughs> All right. I don't know about that. George Clooney is very attractive. He is. And I would date Holly Hunter. Well, speaking of that, uh, would you date Penny or Everett? Uh, Not really. <laughs> I would date Holly Hunter. I would not date Penny. Yeah. Uh, she seems suspect. Yes. And
1: also impossible to hold a conversation with because at some point she'll just count to three and then that'll be the end of yeah. it. Yeah.
0: So do you think that they would stay together? No. No, of course He's not. obviously going to get arrested again and she's going to leave him. Yeah. That's absolutely what's going to happen.
1: So, Mark, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be?
0: Hmm. They're all pretty terrible. Yes. Maybe Tommy. He's, he's, he's great, He's a actually, nice musician. That... He may be damned to hell potentially but he seems very kind
1: yeah he might be the move because i'm trying to think about this and like my other options are what the frog i
0: mean pete and delmar delmar's sweet but i would not want to date him no he's a dummy sea frog <laughs> uh yeah i think you're right i think it's tommy yeah all right so a lot of movies that we watch have been adapted to the stage this movie, music is a heavy part of it, but I would not say it's a musical. Do you think they should make a musical version for the stage of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?
1: Of course. I mean, it's practically a musical already in the way that music functions in a lot of the scenes. I think it could work really well and maybe even better as a musical. Yes.
0: Foreshadowing next week, I believe that idea will carry through. And yeah, I agree. I think this would actually be very fun to see on the stage
1: because you could lean into the fantastical elements in terms of set dressing and projections
0: and things like that and I think that would actually help with the unreality that the movie takes place in and I think it would also give a chance to right the wrongs and its treatment of race and make it actually a movie that says something of value or story yeah.
1: all right yeah this this should be a musical
0: <laughs> all right I think that does it for oh brother where art thou though yeah uh,
1: next week we will be returning to the work of Peyton Reed, director of Down with Love. Who
0: I had no idea directed it until after I saw it.
1: Oh yeah. and uh, we're gonna be looking at his debut feature, the two thousand high school cheerleader movie Bring It On.
0: All right. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail dot com. Make sure to
1: rate review and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show.
0: Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from Oh Brother Where Art Thou?
1: If you sing, attractive people will come
0: to you. Because that is what works for the sirens. It's true. Or I guess what actually works for Penny is get famous and politically important. That is true. All right. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. i